this morning. What a joy to see just such a packed house and the beautiful day all at the same time. Um, God is so good, and pray that you guys are able to enjoy this beautiful gift from God today. It's so nice to just look out at those windows and actually see the sun shining. So may God's sun shine down on us this morning. If you have a Bible, if you'd open up to Acts chapter 17, it will also be projected up behind me. We have Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible or if you don't own, uh, we use the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible here. If you don't own a copy of the ESV and you'd like to use that to follow along on Sundays, please just take one of those home with you. That's our gift to you. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to be breaking the final two parts of Acts chapter 17 as we continue in our study of Acts into two parts. Um, because people in the missional church world that we are a part of love to preach about the results, the approach, the missiology, which is just a fancy word for meaning the theology of mission, that's found in the latter half, the last paragraph of Acts chapter 17. In fact, they love it so much that a church planting movement that we're a part of sprang out of this passage. When you see later on in the passage that Paul went to the Areopagus, Areopagus also is translated as Mars Hill, and Mars Hill started Acts 29, which is the network that our church is a part of, and, and their desire, their approach was to plant churches here domestically and abroad, but to believe that even domestic churches were supposed to be missionaries, live like missionaries in their own community. It's not that we gather together just to be taught and be learners, and then we send money and people overseas so that they can be missionaries. It's both. We live as missionaries. We raise up missionaries. We send out missionaries. That was sort of their watchword as they started out this movement. And a missiology sprang out of it that many of us have been blessed by, even if you don't know that you've been blessed by it. You've probably been blessed by it indirectly, but I get a little bit nervous in the way that I typically hear this passage taught because people typically jump right to the approach, the response, the results, and then the application usually goes like this. Well, you see, if you take this approach, you're going to see this response, and then you're going to get this results. And we know that that's not the way that things work because results are ultimately in the hands of the Lord, not in our methodology. So before you even get into any of the methodology that they use, you see a glimpse of Paul's heart and how it breaks for the city and for the people that he's approaching. So all we're going to do today is pretty simple. Um, next week, we're going to look at Paul's unique... Um, missionary approach, and it's awesome. I'm not trying to downplay it, even though I'm giving some what I believe to be necessary precautions before we get to it. But this week, we're going to be looking at the heart and examining a heart that is provoked for mission. So stated another way, next week, we're going to look at Paul's platform for the gospel. 
that he used to preach the gospel. This week, we're going to look at Paul being provoked for the gospel. An easy way to understand the rest of this passage, if you write in your Bibles or if you want to turn to the person next to you and write in theirs, um, right? provoked precedes platform. Provoked precedes platform. And that's what you're going to be seeing in this passage. Because if your heart is not provoked, then all you really have is strategy. And all of the strategy in the world is not going to change the world for Jesus if it is not coming out of a heart that's been provoked by the gospel. So last week's passage was kind of set up similarly to this passage when we talked about the Bereans. There was this obvious application in the passage of being a student of the word who's able to examine the things that are taught from the word. But before you got into that, it showed a picture of their heart, a heart that wanted to receive the word with eagerness. So before they could or even should sit in judgment above the word that was being preached, they were eager to just be receivers and to receive the word that was being preached. Well, this passage is really similar in the way that it's laid out, and it's laid out in two parts. There's this obvious application that we're going to look at next week of becoming a student of our culture so that we can gain a contextual platform to be able to use to preach the gospel with precision into our culture. But before we can get into that, there's this obvious picture of a heart that is broken for the culture. And it was the heart, not so much the method, that God uses to reach a culture with the gospel. So I'm going to pray as we approach our text, and then we're going to jump in, and may the Lord use it for his glory. God, I thank you for this beautiful text. Lord, I pray that we would be deeply ministered to. I ask that you would hide me behind your cross, that I would not get in the way of what you want to do, and let this stammering tongue, Lord, not be a distraction, but may your word go forth with clarity and precision. God, may we leave here with a deeper affection stirred up for our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So if you look with me at our text, starting in verse 16. I'll go ahead and read our text, and we'll dive in. So while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw a city that was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting for you bring something strange to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So it starts off in verse 16. As Paul enters this city, it says that he sees a city that is full of idols. And as our passage opens, it says that Paul's sitting there waiting. He's waiting for his friends to show up. If you look at the end of his stay in Berea, 
He's now going on to the next stop. And verse 15 talks about how he was separated from Silas and Timothy in Berea. So now he's in Athens and he's awaiting their arrival. And as he's awaiting for them, he decides to go for a little walkabout around the city. And as he's walking around, he's overcome by the idols that are surrounding him from every single angle. Athens was sort of like the hot spot of idolatry in the first century. Uh, The only place that churned out more idols than Athens was the human heart. And as Calvin said, the human heart is the greatest of all idol factories. Um, But Athens was just a, a center of idol Worship. Has anybody ever walked around a sculpture garden or, or, or a monument park? I'm not talking about Yankees Monument Park. I'm talking about like a real monument park. Um, that's sort of what it looked like walking around Athens. There's representations of false idols everywhere. So I guess it is similar to Yankees Monument Park. But if you go there today, you're still going to see evidences and historical remnants of this past culture that's being written about right here. And you see it everywhere. And we're going to see in a moment that it really impacts Paul's heart in a deep, deep way. I can remember I was attending this church planting conference, oh, probably going back almost 10 years ago now. And one of my favorite theologians was speaking at this conference, a man named Sam Storms. And he was sharing out of this passage, but he took it a unique direction that I didn't expect. He started talking about his visit that he had just had to Turkey and to Greece and how he couldn't wait to go out and leave his hotel and and be able to go and observe all of the ruins that were around the city. But before he went out, he wanted to read passages that reflected the place that he was at. So he read this passage that we're looking at right now in his hotel room, and he said that it gave him a whole new set of lenses for the things that he was going to see as he walked around the city. He realized that the things that he was delighting in as a tourist and as tourist attractions were the centers of bondage and spiritual slavery of yesteryear. And as he reflected back on this passage and thought about how Paul was broken as he walked through and observed this city full of idols. And he went on to make this connection that really hit home with him. And as he preached it, it really hit home with me. He said that it was not so much that he was concerned that people were still in bondage to these ancient statues whose ruins remain all around the city, the thing that really impacted him and stirred up his heart was the fact that the form of idolatry may be different, but humanity is still very much the same. And he began to think through all the times that he's gone to various cities and cultural centers all around the world. And so often, the places that are the biggest tourist attractions are also the places that are the most deep-seated and rooted in idolatry and bondage. We don't often think of it like that. We'll even do things to intentionally not think about it like that. So we give cute little nicknames to places like Sin City. Hey, that's fun, right? We all want to go to Sin City to try to make it sound as if bondage is something cute and something to be joked about. And as he contemplated this, he was broken. So I have a question for you before we move on. For the most part, 
we don't have statues to foreign gods on every corner as you walk out of this building. But would we recognize the idols in our city the way that Paul did? Because once again, the heart that was on display in this passage, the heart that longs for idols has not changed. There are no fewer idols just because it's 2017 instead of 60 AD. Our idols just take on a more sophisticated form, if you will, which is kind of an oxymoron. I mean, sophisticated and idolatry go together like sophisticated and redneck would go together, right? They're not really terms that you would typically just combine. Um, But the idols are just as prevalent. They've just taken a different form as we look. I want you guys to think like a missionary, for a moment. We're going to approach this passage thinking the way that Paul would have thought as he approached this passage. What are the unique cultural idols in this area? I'm not talking about the generic ones, which are the same everywhere you go, like the things like lust or greed or ungodly hunger for power or self-esteem or self-centeredness. Those things exist everywhere. They're just part and parcel of fallen nature and a fallen heart beating within our chest. But as you look at Tom's River... As you look out at Brick, I know that we have a pretty wide driving radius that represents the people that come to this church. If you look out, let's expand it a little bit, over Ocean and Monmouth County, New Jersey in 2017, and try to do your best to think like a missionary, what are our unique cultural idols? I mean, actually think about it for a moment. I want you to see if you can come up with any in your brain. I I have a few, but this list is in no way exhaustive. Um, Chronic busyness was the first one that came to my mind. I I can't think of too many relationships that I have, and I'm putting myself right at the square in the middle of this because I do it too, where you try to converse with people and you say, hey, we need to get together, we need to spend some fellowship, and oh, I'm just so busy. Everybody's just always so busy. I rarely hear from people that just say, like, hey, hit me up, because I'm not busy whatsoever. And I would love to be used, and I'd like to take all of my free time and devote it to the church. And when you do, I'm not saying you never see that, but when you do see it, it's really precious, because it's so rare, because people are often just dictated by this busyness that they feel like they're in no control over, even though they're very much in control over it, people just don't like to use the word no. Even though you are actually saying no to something, if you're too busy to be able to fellowship and to worship with the assembly of the people of God, you're just saying no to that, so that you could say yes to the other things that make up your list of chronic busyness. Uh, Another one would be allowing the nice things in our area to take away from the necessary place of worship. Does God want us to have nice things? I think so. I love living by the shore. Me and Marcy and the kids spent the day yesterday on the Asbury Park boardwalk, just walking up and down, just thanking God that we live in this beautiful area where I can look out at this vast ocean and be reminded that there is this huge and enormous God, and I'm so small. The ocean has a way of just kind of reminding us of that, but we can get swept away by the nice things that surround us, 
and the nice things can distract us from the necessary things. Isolation from community. That's a big one in this area if we're going to look at cultural idols. We live in an area where if people could go from house to work, back to house, and never have to interact with another human being, that would be a win for them, right? I mean, garage door openers on every car, it's like, let me leave my house in a way where I don't even have to interact with my neighbors, and the only time that I might see them, God forbid, is when I take out my garbage or go and get the mail, but I'm going to just keep moving to online bill pay so I don't even have to see them when I go to my mailbox anymore. Um, Another one would be living beyond our means and being willing to sacrifice the wrong things in order to avoid a life of sacrifice for the right things. If you want to know if you fall into that one, just take a look at your expenditures. And take a look at where you devote your time and money to. Uh, The average person in America today, I don't know if this statistic is current, I heard it back in like 2008, but they spend 110% of their income on themselves. Meaning not only are they spending their whole paycheck, but then they're spending extra on themselves. And then people want to meet with you and say, why is it that I don't burn for God the way that I used to? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If you spend all of your time, attention, and money on you, why are you going to be surprised if the only person you ever think about is you? Another cultural idol, I might offend somebody with this one, but thankfully I I don't care, Um, worshiping children instead of parenting them. Man, do we live in an area where it... People just worship their children's schedules. I've heard people say things like, well, this is the season that I take off church because of what? Like, could you imagine looking the Apostle Paul in the eye and being like, hey, this is just going to be the three-month season that I take off church so I can go and worship my kids' schedule. Um, Man, Paul would have yanked you by the ear. Uh, When visiting friends come from out of town, they often remark that they can't believe how deep of an idol kids' sports is in this area. I'm blown away, blown away when I sit with the parents of like six and seven-year-olds and they tell me about all the potential that their kid has on the soccer field. (laughs) When I was six or seven, maybe I had the potential of making like snakes out of Play-Doh. I wasn't looking for potential. How about your kid just having the potential to be a kid, right? You know, not having to be the next star athlete so that you can live your childhood through them. And there's way more that I could get into, but you get the idea. If any of those hit close to home, I'm not calling you out. The Spirit is, so let him do your work. The bigger question is, if we did recognize it, would we be willing to have the same reaction that Paul did here in this passage? So what does it say about Paul's heart as he observed these idols? Look with me again at verse 16. It says, now Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and his spirit was provoked within him when he saw this city full of idols. So first of all, what does it mean for your spirit to be provoked? This is... 
the only usage of the Greek term paranaxeto in the entire Bible. But researching ancient Greek actually sheds a little bit of light on this beautiful term. The most direct translation from Greek literature means to be stirred up or to have a churning going on inside of you. To be stirred up or have a churning going on inside of you. Think about that for a moment. It means that as Paul observed the idols that were going on in this city, that there was this churning that was going on inside his heart. And as he looked around and observed, he felt this stirring going on inside of him. So what did it look like for Paul to be provoked? Well, we don't know a ton, but based on the context, we can extrapolate a couple of things that should be clear. First of all, For Paul, being provoked meant that he was not okay with what he observed going on around him. So we'll just start a base coat with that. As he looked, observes this city full of idols, he's not okay with it. Second, we see that he seeks God's will and for God's heart to know how to deal with the churning that's going on inside of him. And third, it meant that he felt compelled to take action with the churning that was going on inside of him. Paul was not like the social justice warriors of today who are always provoked but do nothing about it but post a clever status on Facebook. It's interesting. We live in a time where people are more provoked probably than any other time in history. And if you don't believe me, just drive down the street and just watch the provocation that people... I mean, it just seems like we live in a culture where everybody is redlining all the time. And all it takes is that one thing and people are ready to snap. At least that's what I observe. But he's not just provoked to be able to think about it. He's not just provoked to talk about it. He's provoked to do something about it. People take this churning inside and this inner turmoil and they're often moved to write a clever tweet of 140 characters or less. I actually, I laugh when I see some of the things that provoke people because you know that in 48 hours, They're going to forget all about that thing that is all-encompassing to them. And they're not only provoked by it, you're not as spiritual as they are if you're not provoked by it in their eyes. And then, within 48 hours, they forget about the thing that they were originally provoked about to begin with. You want some proof? Anyone remember Stop Coney? No? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, that time when millions of people were provoked and decided that they were going to depose of a foreign dictator by liking statuses on Facebook? (laughs) Anybody remember all the hullabaloo about the Da Vinci Code when that came out? I was going to Moody at the time, and there was not a church marquee that you could drive by that they weren't doing a series on the Da Vinci Code. That was time well spent looking back on it, right? Anybody remember the 15 minutes that people were really provoked over Fifty Shades of Grey, like that was going to be the thing because sexual immorality obviously never existed before that book never came, came out. Now the shack's out in the movies. Actually, it's not. It was out for a week. Rotten Tomatoes, I looked it up this morning, gave it a 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
But people were provoked to get up on their soapbox for 15 more minutes. And once again, on to the next thing. That's not what it means when it says that Paul was provoked. It meant that there was a stirring, and stirring indicated action, and that action incited change. Another question before moving on is why was he provoked? Because idols, by their very nature, chip away at the created order of things. They rob us of our relationship and our fellowship with God that we were created for. They serve as a cheap substitute for the most important relationship that each of us was created for. They take our desire for God and displace it to the point where we elevate something to a greater than God status in our lives. They make us satisfied with things that we were never intended to be satisfied with and that can ultimately bring us no satisfaction. And that's why people crave more and more of that idol to be able to scratch the itch that the idol used to scratch because it's not scratching that itch anymore because every single idol is going to have the law of diminishing returns. It's not going to do the things that it used to do for you when you first began to pursue it. And ultimately, they rob God of the glory that he and he alone is due. Keep your finger in Acts 17 and turn over to Joel chapter 1 for a minute. I think that for Paul, provoked probably looked a lot like this, starting in Joel 1. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all of the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out. To the Lord. Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near as the destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not food cut off from before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? Joel is lamenting the idolatrous nature of the people in that book and that our God is not receiving the glory that he's due. And that people are settling for less and ultimately destroying, as it says in verse 16, destroying their joy and gladness. How ironic is that? That in settling for less, they were settling for less because they thought they were pursuing joy and gladness. But Joel says that in their pursuit of joy and gladness, they forgot to seek the originator of joy and gladness. And therefore, joy and gladness are cut off. From before their very hearts because our God loves us too much to allow us to be able to dead end at joy and gladness for anything other than in himself. Ultimately, all roads to lasting joy and gladness lead through an old rugged cross. If you are here this morning and you are looking for a life of joy and gladness, you will not find it in this life or in the next, in any other place other than the name of Jesus Christ. All other roads lead to unsustainable joy and eventual loss of joy and gladness. So I would say that Paul has good reason to be provoked. So what, that's what it looks like for Paul to be provoked. What does it look like for you and me 
to be provoked as we start to dial this in and bring it home. When's the last time your heart churned within you? Seriously, I want you to think for a moment. Like, locate that thing in your heart. When's the last time that your heart churned and was provoked within you? How long has it been since you've felt that intense stirring that's described in verse 16 right here? When's the last time that an inward churning became an agent of change in your life and affected you to be an agent of change? Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a minister of reconciliation. I can't answer that for you but I pray that you do have an answer, and I pray that if you don't have an answer, that you would take that seriously. If you can't think of the last time you've been provoked, it's been too long since the last time that you've been provoked. I pray that as you look out at our city, that you would regularly be provoked to the point of churning and stirring up within your heart. I have another heart question for you, and this one's a little bit more difficult. When's the last time that your heart was provoked for something that didn't directly have to do with you? When's the last time that your heart was provoked for something that didn't directly have to do with you? Look, it's easy to be provoked about a perceived or real injustice that's done against us. But when's the last time that you felt that feeling of intense provocation about something that didn't have you directly at the center? If you look at this passage, Paul's provoked, and it has nothing to do with Paul. If you think back over the last few weeks' passages, it proves my point. This guy was beaten. He was thrown out of cities. He was thrown in jail. He was given an unjust trial. Things that I see people provoked for on the daily, much less than these things. And nowhere does it say that his heart was provoked. But as he saw these cheap substitutes that robbed from the glory of God and created bondage in the hearts of God's children, that's what provoked Paul's heart. So what does it look like for your heart to be provoked? And just a quick note before moving on, people who seem most concerned about um, and, and provoked for God's mission tend to be less focused on and provoked about the things that pertain to themselves. And on the flip side, people that spend all of their day thinking about themselves will never be provoked for God's mission. If the sum total of your thoughts during a day are you, then the sum total of your mission is going to be you. So eventually, Paul's provoked heart leads him to a platform to preach the gospel, but provoked has to come before a platform, which is why I am breaking this passage up. Look at verses 17 through 19. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Others said he's preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So the message never changes, but the platform on which we deliver that message is going to change. In fact, it should change. And by platform, I don't mean this little stage area that I'm sitting on. The platform is our culture. 
So if you're wondering what the platform for the gospel is, it is our culture. And we're going to see next week that Paul was a master at diagnosing the culture and diagnosing the unique cultural idols and then using the culture as a platform for the presentation and the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel with great precision. And what I mean by this is the gospel will never change. Look, the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for your sin, that he died on that cross to pay your debt in full. He substituted for your penalty. He took on the full wrath of God in his person. He defeated sin when he walked out of the grave, and that through faith in him, we might live forever and ever in all eternity with Jesus. That message doesn't change from one location to the next, but the way that I share the gospel in Texas is probably going to differ from the way that I share it in Serbia or Italy. Understanding how to use what's unique about the culture as an opportunity to preach the gospel with precision is what makes us missionaries. But unless that platform comes from a heart that's provoked, it's going to come across this cheesy and inauthentic. Look, people have tried to gain platforms through so many other ways other than being provoked. It's one of the reasons why people look at the church and they look at us as a bunch of phonies. Do you know that that's the view? That pe people don't look at the church as if it's dangerous or world changers like you saw in Acts 16 and 17. They look at it like it's a bunch of religious hypocrites and phonies. And a lot of that is because if you try to gain a platform through anything other than provocation in the heart by the spirit, it's going to come across just as it is, something that's fake and manufactured. Some, some other platforms that people use other than being provoked, methodolatry is a big one. That's idolatry of your methods. I can't tell you how many pastors that I connect with. That their way is the right way of doing things. Man, people are going to have some explaining to do when they meet Jesus over that one. That's what I call the way we do things platform. Production. That's another platform. If I have another, enough licks and tricks and gimmicks, and if we can make this service completely smooth, and if there's never any problems with it, and if we have the right fog machine over here and the right laser light machine over there, people are going to flock to the altar, and they're going to want to know Jesus because nothing provokes the heart more than a fog machine. <laughs> Comparison and contrast. Those are the ones that... Hey, they do things this way, but we do things this way. You ever notice that the we is never in the lower place in that sentence? It's never like, hey, they are doing things awesome, but we, we're not so awesome. It's always just a defense of our own awesomeness. To get edginess, that's a platform that people just absolutely love in this day and age. The edgier, the pastor, the better, right? I mean... The more tattoos, I'm not against tattoos, I've got, I've got plenty, but as edgy as I can be, that's going to make people want to know Jesus. That's why the youth aren't coming to church, right? Because we're not edgy enough. Celebrity, that's another platform that people use rather than being provoked. 
And then mob mentality was another one that I throw out. You know, if I'm not provoked, just get enough people to agree with me, and that means that I'm right. And people have tried to make the platform be so many other things other than culture. It has to be culture. The message has to be the gospel. The platform has to be the culture, again, or else it will be cheesy and inauthentic. So some other platforms other than the culture, causes. People love to rally around causes. Cause-based Christianity is one of the worst witnesses to an unbelieving world. You want to know why? Because we believe in a God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We believe in a gospel that doesn't change, but the causes are always going to change. What we need to do is stand on a rock that's bedrock soil that does not deviate ever and be able to be steady in a culture that shifts like shifting sand. If you're constantly preaching causes, you're going to be like a dog chasing its tail. You're never going to get anywhere. Moral crusades, that's another platform that people like to use. You know, if I can just look at society and just see, well, look at the uprising of insert whatever moral thing was different from when you grew up, well, then that's going to be the platform. You ever notice that Paul doesn't start with moral crusades? Jesus doesn't start with moral crusades. Even when they brought people, like in John chapter 8, they bring this woman caught in adultery. If there was ever a moral crusade you could have had, it's the naked woman being caught in adultery to Jesus. And still, he just goes, precision beeline, right to the heart, and goes straight to the gospel. Whatever's new and exciting, that's a platform. You could see that by church marquees. You know, um, one of my favorite ones is... uh, Was it a faith book called God Gave You a Friend Request? Um, Gosh. I don't think I've ever wanted to vandalize a church sign more than when I see that one. Uh, The News Cycle. That's that's a very, very frequent platform. Whatever's going on in the news must be the most important thing going on in the world. Not the pre-existent God who knew what was going on before any of this happened. Maximizing personal influence, getting your name out there. That's a platform that people, whenever you start to hear a pastor talk about maximizing their influence and getting their name out there, leave that church and run as fast as you can because that pastor is about to undergo a very public fall. It will happen and it's happening as an epidemic all around us. So when the platform becomes more important than the culture, then culture, Let me say this differently. When the platform becomes the culture, the culture becomes the tool that the missionary uses as a bridge to the gospel rather than something to be railed against. Notice that Paul never rails against the culture here. As we go on in the passage, you're going to see that he was actually very adept in the culture. He knew the culture. He uses it to share a common ground for the gospel. You're not going to gain an audience with an unbelieving group of people by preaching against an unbelieving culture because they don't know any better. Look, non-Christians don't know how to be Christians. I wish missionaries would realize this, that we need to stop trying to make non-Christians act like Christians before they can become Christians. Christians, you're never going to win people for the kingdom by just preaching against and admonishing against a culture that they don't even understand what's wrong with to begin with. 
And I find it ironic that older generations spend so much time railing against the culture of younger generations and then in the same breath wonder why young people are fleeing the church in record numbers. Would you want to go somewhere where you just hear, back in my day, everything was awesome, but then you guys came and goofed it all up? I know that I'd get tired of hearing that. If we goofed it up, there might be a chance we inherited it that way. Just a thought. Culture's not something to rail against, but a platform to be able to be used to share the good news of Jesus. And we see that Paul's platform is a little bit different in this passage. He typically goes right to the synagogue, which he he does. You see in verse 17, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. That's his MO. He does that. But this has a different flavor than his other missionary journeys. These guys were not really familiar with the scriptures. So he couldn't do like he did when he went into religious cultures and just say, look, you know this Jesus that you were looking for out of the Old Testament scriptures? Here he is. They weren't looking for a Jesus, and they weren't reading the Old Testament scriptures. So what he does is he establishes what they both know as common ground, and he uses the common ground to build a bridge to the good news of Jesus. And though the platform might be different, The message doesn't ever, ever change. Look again at verse 18. It says that they were accusing him of these things because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Remember I told you guys the last two weeks that Paul only owns a one-string guitar? I told you, look at every sermon, and you're always going to see Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus, and it's the only song he plays. It's like when I learned how to play guitar. I don't, I don't know how to play guitar, but I could go bam, 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 bam. And you know what I would play next? Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> That's the way Paul preached. It was his smoke on the water, man. He had a one-string guitar, and he preached one sermon, Jesus and the resurrection. And the people of the city, it says that they all just wanted to sit around and gather and talk about what's new. That's where we're going to pick up next week, but I want to just hit your hearts with this, that knowledge for knowledge's sake is different than being provoked. And uh, there can be an idolatry, idolatries in our culture there can be an idolatry of always wanting to hear something new. I remember this book came out about suffering that was really big a few years ago, and it was saying the next time that you see somebody suffering, don't come at them with Romans 8.28. If you don't know Romans 8.28, we know that all, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So don't just come at them with, hey, you know, why not? They actually turned 828 into a verb. They're like, don't just go Romans 828, somebody. Why? Because they need a new truth? Because the old truth is no longer sufficient? And they need to go buy your $15 book at Barnes & Noble to be able to know how to have the wisdom because the scriptures are no longer sufficient to be able to speak into these things? That's idolatry, man. Call it what it is. It's the same heart you see here, just wanting to learn from that which is new. When Hebrews chapter 2 says, we actually need to pay closer attention to that which we've already heard lest we drift away from it. So a couple application questions for you in closing. As you observe cultural idols in our area, does your life look radically different than the idols that ensnare people into our mission field? How can you 
possibly preach a message of freedom from bondage if we're choosing the very same bondage that we would be saying that Christ has freed us from. When's the last time that your heart was deeply, deeply provoked? If, if, please, I'm begging you, if you don't have an answer to that question, let that ruminate, marinate in your heart. Have an answer for it. Pray. God, break my heart. Let me be provoked. When's the last time that you were deeply provoked about something that didn't have you at the center spoke of the wheel? What does it look like to be provoked to a place of action? I'm not just talking about, I'm going to pick myself by the bootstraps and take action. I'm talking about when Jeremiah said, I can't remain silent. Because if I did, it would be like a burning shut up within my bones. That's what it feels like to be provoked. How does ministering out of a place of being provoked go so much deeper than ministering from a place of duty? And the last question as we go to the communion table, in what ways are you provoked to stir up your affections this morning? Jonathan Edwards often talked about the stirring of the religious affections. In what way is your heart provoked toward Jesus this morning? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for divine provocation, which goes so much deeper than just trying to muster up duty. Lord, I pray that as we look out at our culture and the great need for people to know our Savior, that we would be a missionary people that are provoked. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.